for those of you who may be watching, listening to this live, I want to thank you for checking us out. Um, if you have any comments or questions, leave them in the appropriate sections, and that would be in the comment section at the bottom of the YouTube video. And, um, well, I'm sure you know on Facebook uh, where, where you can leave those comments. Um, but if you also have any questions, you need to know, want to know more about us, I encourage you to visit our website at vcelp.org and um, you can get all the information there about what we're all about, what we believe, um, our COVID guidelines, where we're located, uh, just a little bit, a little bio about myself, uh, how we began here, when we began here. So, um, and if there's questions there that haven't been answered or uh, aren't answered, feel free to contact me. There is a contact section, prayer request contact section in the bottom of the homepage where you can leave um, a prayer request or, a, again, a comment to us. And if you fill that out, send it to me, and, and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Also, in the bottom of our webpage, um, we do have a PayPal link. If you don't feel comfortable doing it that way, you can also send it to our uh, church address. Um, and that's going to be 42, 42 Hondo Pass Drive, Suite 101. And that's going to be El Paso, Texas, 79904. So, um, again, thank you. And we definitely hope that you are blessed this morning. Um, so I've titled this morning's message, God, are you there? Are you there? And this was a question that Habakkuk will be asking this morning as we go through our passage. Now, as if you were with us last week, if you watched us, you know that I gave you a pretty good or tried to give you a pretty good thorough introduction to this book. Um, and I may, throughout this study, cover just a few things here and there, but um, if you do have any questions about names or locations, or I would encourage you to check out last week's message, and, and they may be answered there in uh, last week's study. So again, this week we're going to finally start digging into chapter one, and so I hope you have our Bibles ready, and as we begin to really uh, read and dig into God's Word. Uh, so before we begin, let's ask the Lord to speak to us once again this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, you have brought us all here for a reason and purpose. And now as we begin going chapter by chapter and verse by verse in the book of Habakkuk, I pray that you will reveal truths that we've not known before, Lord, that we have a better understanding of you, of your Son, of the Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we may draw near to you, so that we may fall more in love with you. Fill this room, Lord, with your Spirit, and open our eyes and ears. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Habakkuk chapter 1. Just 
What would be this morning? Habakkuk chapter 1. And I've broken this down into two sections, and we're going to first be going through the first four verses, and then afterwards, verses 5 through 11. The Word of God says, The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, How long, Lord, must, must I call for help, and you do not listen or cry out, or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective, and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Chapter 1 begins with what appears to be the title of the book, the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now these pronouncements or oracles were given by God to his prophets to proclaim judgments, typically judgments against Gentile nations. Ironically, though, this through this or, this oracle would be God's judgment, but not against Gentiles, but against the nation of Judah. Now, furthermore, the Hebrew word "saw," when used of the prophets, often means to see a vision. Thus, when they these prophets received glimpses from God into the future or about his word, what he's saying, they were sometimes referred to as God's seers. Now, after we're given, given the title and the author, the book then opens with a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord in two sections. So let's look at that now. Habakkuk's first set of questions comes like crashing waves. In verse 2, he wonders how long he must wait for God's help against violence. In verse 3, he wants to know why he and Yahweh must continue tolerating six problems. Injustice, wrongful suffering, destruction, violence, strife, and conflict. In verse 4, these problems lead to four more. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous. And because of these, justice is perverted. The corruption of national politics here is the historical context of his complaint. Habakkuk asked his question at a time when the hope when the hopes for justice and righteousness had been raised and dashed again and again in Judah. I went over last week, but the corruption of Jerusalem's government under Jehoiakim's uh, reign is the main historical context for Habakkuk's complaint here. 
Now let me break down these verses just a little bit further. In Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, Habakkuk, I mean, he wants to know how long, how long must he call for help before Yahweh will listen and save? His cry against violence is a legal plea for justice in the Old Testament, which God promises to hear this ordinary complaint of local corruption in Judah begins like a lament come into the Psalms and in Job. As I mentioned earlier, the prophet then addresses six problems of corruption in Judah in matched pairs in Habakkuk in, in verse 3. The first pair of problems was injustice and wrongdoing, or in other words, wrongful suffering, which are essentially two sides of the same coin, meaning the injustice of, a, of the person doing wrong and the wrong that was suffered as a result are two, are two parts of the same human problem. So what the prophet wants to know here is, why? Why doesn't Yahweh intervene and why does he tolerate it? The third and fourth problems are also a pair. Oppression and violence. He, the, the prophet Habakkuk, has personally seen how these two problems, how they've wrecked havoc on his community and in the relationships in those communities. The last pair of problems in verse 3 are the Hebrew legal terms strife and conflict. The fact that Habakkuk says that they're ongoing indicates that not only were there many lawsuits and many legal quarrels in Judah, but they were escalating. Does that sound familiar? I think so. In verse 4, Habakkuk goes on to say that these six problems have led to four situations that are even more terrible. And again, they're given in pairs. Those are the laws ineffective. Justice never emerges. The wicked restrict the righteous. And fourthly, justice comes out perverted. In other words, he was saying that the courts were no longer working. Their justice system was broken. Thus, in a brief, in, in few, in a few brief words, Habakkuk is describing a society full of crime, violence, corruption, mock legal battles, and the defeat of the righteous. It has ruined a society. And this is why the prophet wants to know why Yahweh tolerates, is tolerating the flourishing of such wickedness. This prayer of Habakkuk is one that many believers often look to when they find themselves struggling when they see people suffer 
or evil people prosper. Or they find themselves asking, why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't God answering the church's prayer? Or maybe this question, when I'm doing my best for the Lord, why do I experience the worst from others? See, Christians who claim to be without problems are either not telling the truth or not growing and experiencing real life. Perhaps they're just not thinking at all. They're living a religious dream. They're living in a religious dream world that has blocked out all reality and stifled honest feelings. Like Job's uncomfortable comfort, comforters, they mistake shallow optimism for the peace of God and the good life for the blessing of God. You never hear them ask what David and Jesus asked. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Well, Habakkuk wasn't that kind of believer. As he looked around and saw the evil around him, he found himself struggling with some serious problems. But he did the right thing. He took his problems to the Lord. And that's exactly what we must do as well as we see the same circumstances in our world, in our society, in our communities, in our homes, in our schools. You must do that as well. Now let's cover some of these questions he asked to see if they apply to any of you personally. Now Habakkuk's initial set of questions was basically, God, are you there? Are you listening to my cries for help? Have you prayed that before? Have you been through the worst of the worst? And it you just feel overwhelmed. And you pray, and you pray, and you're not sure if God is listening. You're not sure if he's there. You begin to doubt. You begin to wonder, do you care about me? Do you love me? Well, know and understand this. He does. He hears you. If you're his child, he's hearing you. If one of my children said, hey, dad, can you take a moment to, to, to hear me out? I wouldn't say, oh, I don't got time for you. I've got other things to take care of. I'd be like, yeah, let me, what's going on? What's happening? Especially, especially if they, I know they've, they got that quiver in their voice and they got tears are swelling up in their eyes. My whole world will drop in order to hear them. And, and you, if you're a born-again believer as his child, that's how he sees you. That's how he treats you. 
He loves you because you're his, you're his child. The moment you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and became born again, he's held you in his arms and has been there and will always be there, even during times of rebellious rebelliousness. So yes, during those times you think if he's there, if he's listening, he is. Silence doesn't mean that he's abandoned you. Habakkuk's next set of questions are good ones as well. As we look at what's going on in the world around us, as we see the injustice, maybe in 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 our in our government, in our justice system, in different areas of of life. And, you know, maybe some of you have asked, why does God allow us to see injustice and wrongdoing? It seems like no matter where we turn, good people are constantly berated, silenced, and mistreated, while the bad people are rewarded, they're praised, and they're honored. You see this, and it angers you, it frustrates you. Your blood begins to boil as you see that nothing's being done about it. And all you want to do is scream and say something or do something, you want to pick up a bat, you want to pick up a rock, you want to pick up, you know, something and, and, and show people how angry you are. And you want to, you know, right now we're seeing examples of people going out and looting stores, burning businesses and I refuse to believe that that's a proper way for a people to deal with their anger. No. God has given us the proper way to deal with those feelings of anger and frustration. But again, you may start to feel this way as you start to see injustice. You want to do something about it, but you know you shouldn't. Because you know that these feelings are of the flesh and not of the spirit. Well, the best thing you can do is what we see the prophet doing here. Come to the God, come to God in prayer and just pour your soul out to him 
We're told in Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. This tells us that He not only hears us, but will rescue us the way you need it. How you need it. Especially when you feel like your emotions are overtaking you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, never forget that God even if the justice you're seeking isn't met in this lifetime he has assured us that he will he will deal with it in the next let me remind you what it says in revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 it says there then i saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, books, not one book, but books were opened, which is, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up their dead, the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, knowing this, let me now share with you a few reasons why God allows us to see injustice. He allows us to see injustice so that we might, to show us that we might, what we might have been if we were left to our own devices. He allows us to see injustice, to make us see the wickedness of sin, that we might pa- excuse me, pass by it and hate it and not indulge in it ourselves. He allows us to see injustice, to make us admire the grace of God when He saves sinners. And He allows us to see injustice, to see more earnest, to, to set us more earnestly to work, to the work God has called us to, in order to save, to, to save sinners and extend or grow God's kingdom. Regarding that, Spurgeon said this, Ah, my brethren, we need to know more of the evil of men to make us more earnest in seeking their salvation. For there be anything in which the church is lacking more than any other matter, it is a matter of earnestness. Let 
as Christ followers, we love joy. We promote peace. We embrace hope. We've all heard sermons on these three cornerstones of our faith. What about lament, anger, and mindfulness? These are the poor cousins that really don't get a look into. No one really pays attention to. Yet, these three responses to injustice are beautiful tools that God has given us to survive the battle. We overlook these to our own detriment. Let me show you. Lament. Did you know that fully one-third of the Bible is a lament? Yet it remains one of the responses to a broken world that the church most often undervalues. Yet even a cursory look through the Psalms reveal that David sang songs of lament all the time. Worship leaders, those of you who are out there and are worship leaders or want to be worship leaders, we need this. A poignant picture of lament is captured in one of the most tragically beautiful phrases found in Scripture. Jesus wept. Allow that image to sink in and penetrate your imagination. When you look at your cities, at our cities, our broken families, our nation, we see the hurt and the injustice of pain. And if you're healthy, if you're a healthy Christian, you will weep. Sometimes the battle not being won. Sometimes the oppression is too much. Sometimes the hurt and the brokenness is overwhelming. And God has given us a human response. Lament. Tears need to gently fall. Rage needs to be released. And then that leads me to the next one here. Anger. Anger gets a bum rap. It's dangerously close to a sin in many people's minds. And yes, uncontrolled anger can cross over into sin. Yet Paul said, be, anger, be angry and do not sin in Ephesians 2.26. There is a righteous anger that is not sinful. So go right ahead, scream and yell, rage against the machine, just don't hurt anyone, and don't hurt yourself. A righteous anger then is necessary, more than necessary. It's the appropriate response to injustice 
and sin. Not because your own rights are being trampled upon, but because those of our brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, are being ripped to shreds. It's the wrath of God expressed in and through our human bodies. Why do we need anger? One reason is the mechanism by which God leads us into action. The adrenaline flows, the heart pounds, and we're moved to act. Without that fire, we remain apathetic and unmoved. So let's allow room for anger. When we see injustice, anger is natural. It's normal. Embrace it. However, don't allow it to cross over into sin. Number three, mindfulness. For me, this has become the deepest and most important response to injustice. If I can tap into it. Lament and anger. Immerse me in the hurt and pain of the situation. But mindfulness of God's presence is what lifts me out of it. Mindfulness is the sense of awareness I have, I have in any given moment that God is with me. It provides a sense of distance from the situation I'm immersed in. And over the years, I have found that mindfulness or listening, prayerfulness to be the only healthy stance from which to address injustice. As I cry out with those who have been assaulted, beaten, or lament with those who find no justice in the courts, the very best thing I can offer them is a sense of connectedness to God. And it is surely the only way I can dig deep to love my enemies, love my enemies, those who oppress. I listen to their pain with one ear to God, who is there with us. He, God, is weeping with us. He is raging too, but He is also offering something deeper, healing and love. And it's ours to tap into if we remain open. Now in the next portion of this chapter, that we're about to read is God's response. However, we're going to see that it's not exactly the kind of response that Habakkuk expected. So let's go back to our passage here and pick up in verse 5. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans 
And again, as I mentioned last week, it, your, some of your translation may say Babylonians, but they're one and the same. Look, I am raising, verse 6, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches, marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves more fierce than the wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. As you can see, Yahweh, God here, responds to Habakkuk's prayer, to Habakkuk's prayer, by redirecting his attention from local issues to international issues of violence. His first response has no introduction. God simply begins speaking, but the contents of his response is surprising. Was God? Ignoring the question. Because it, it, it sure seems that Habakkuk's question and Yahweh's answer have nothing to do with one another. See, Habakkuk begins with a domestic problem. And yet Yahweh answers with an international issue. Habakkuk says, look at this. And Yahweh replies, look at that, using the same verbs as Habakkuk used in his questions. Here's what I mean. In verse 3, Habakkuk says, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Whereas in verse 5, Yahweh says, look at the nations and observe. Now, God responds to the question by providing a bigger version of the question. And he does this so that the prophet will see and understand that although Judah is corrupt, although that nation or you know, the nation that Habakkuk is, is living in is corrupt, Babylon, the Chaldeans, are much worse. Let me break it down to you and explain. Verse 5 prepares a prophet with this, uh, for this up, up, abrupt response. He tells Habakkuk, you will not believe when you hear about it. In other words, the situation is, that he's in, it's only going to get worse. So God's challenge 
is for Habakkuk to believe the unbelievable. However, when we cover verses 12 and 13 next week, we're going to see that Habakkuk fails to meet this challenge. See, although God tells him here that he'll be raising up the Chaldeans, which he describes as a bitter and impetuous people, the prophet can't believe it. You can't, you can't believe that this is going to happen. And we learn here that the Chaldean people had a reputation of being terrifying. They were bitter, meaning they were angry, resentful, and they were fierce. They were also impetuous, meaning they were swift, quick, and hasty. These rhyming Hebrew words described a ruthless and powerful army that caused nations to change their political structures. And furthermore, as they, furthermore, as they swept across the earth's open spaces, their only purpose, their only intent was to plunder and seize territories that didn't belong to them. Now, the source of their ruthlessness is described in verse 7. And again, there it says they are fierce and terrifying because their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. To put it simply, their form of justice promoted self-honor. For example, if someone thought that one of these Chaldeans thought that you were looking at them in a disrespectful way, they could just simply kill you and not be punished for it. Thus, their character was rooted in self-sufficiency that acknowledge no superior authority other than themselves to hold them accountable. And again, I think we see many people like that today. So basically, what they were doing was they were putting themselves in the place of God and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And we need not look far to see historical and modern day examples of the ruthlessness men, man is capable of when they don't have or don't fear a superior authority. They have ruled or are ruling with terror and fear because their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves, what they think is right, than from God. Chaldeans' impetuous speed and swift advance to Jerusalem are then described in verses 8 and 9, by using comparisons to wild animals. Listen again to God's description. Their horses, swifter than leopards, and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead from distant lands, and they fly like eagles, 
swooping to devour. Nebuchadnezzar demonstrated his daring military speed following the battle of Carchemish, where he secured his domination of the ancient Near East by defeating the Egyptian imperial forces. Following the battle, he immediately pursued and defeated an army more than 150 miles to crush them completely. And when he heard about his father's death, he raced home hundreds of miles to secure his throne. It's with that same daring speed that his military forces would eventually advance and overtake Jerusalem. God tells Habakkuk in verse 9 that at that time when they would come and destroy Jerusalem, their only intent, they they will come and do violence and their faces will be set in determination, meaning they will stop at nothing to complete their objective and ensure nothing less than complete domination is achieved. And once it has been, they will gather the city's inhabitants as prisoners like sand and they will force them to march in long lines to Babylon. In verses 10 11, the Lord tells Habakkuk the Chaldean God was their military strength. Their God emerged when they, again, as I mentioned, they defeated the Assyrians at Nineveh and the Egyptians at Carchemish. When that happened, the Chaldean people realized that no one was going to be able to stop their military might. And now they had something to boast about. And they began to arrogantly mock kings and rulers. Mock kings and rulers became a joke to them. But not only did the Babylonians treat their neighbors with contempt, they would also laugh at every fortress. These fortresses, these fortresses were meant to be a nation's defensive stronghold. They gave people security, and they were supposed to be impregnable. However, the Chaldeans were laughing how easy easy they could breach these fortresses by simply building siege ramps to capture it. These siege ramps were nothing more than mounds of dirt that would be built along the outside of the fortress walls. So now, rather than wasting time and energy trying to break through these walls, all they had to do was race up these mounds of dirt, climb over the walls, fight, put up a good fight, and capture it. And by controlling this fortress, Once they control it, they can concentrate their full efforts in attacking and plundering the cities it was designed to defend. So by ridiculing 
them by ridiculing the fortresses. They were basically saying to their enemies and neighbors that they were too weak and too stupid to stop them. As Americans, our security comes from knowing that we have the best technological tools to thwart any enemy attack. We have the best military, we have the best missiles, we have the best tanks and, and jets. We have, we feel pretty secure because we think we have a good defense. However, uh, again, I want you to put your imagination caps off on. And again, this is just a scenario, an, imagine, an imaginary scenario. But imagine if Canada began to reveal the vulnerabilities of that technology, of our defense systems, told the world, and then told the world how they can easily get past those defensive systems. And to make matters worse, to, to really jab us in the heart, they would, really, they would publicly ridicule us by calling us weak and stupid. Let me ask you, first of all, would you still feel safe? And then, would you still consider them a friendly neighbor? Probably not. I think that many of you would begin to suspect that it will only be a matter of time before they would come and attack us. Well, this is what the Chaldean neighbors were feeling. Again, God's description of what will come doesn't hide the fact of Chaldean guilt. So he can his first response by saying in verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. The indictment of guilt means that they have committed some kind of offense, which we then find out is their worship of their own strength. Here, the Hebrew word for strength means muscle, muscle strength, or brawn. In other places of the Old Testament, the same word is used to refer to Samson's might. A wild ox in Job 39.11, a blacksmith in Isaiah 44.12, a lone warrior in Isaiah 63.1, a goat in Daniel 8.6, or a man of brute strength such as in Amos chapter 2, verse 14. So what this tells us is that the Chaldeans were a brute force that enabled them to mock kings and laugh at fortified cities. But here's the thing. Not only did they know they had this power, but they also worshipped it. Their strength was their God. They treated their might as their master. For them, might was right 
became might was divine. It therefore shouldn't surprise us that God declared them guilty for this sin. The lesson Habakkuk learned in this first interaction is that God wasn't indifferent to the sins of the people of Judah. Rather, the Lord was planning to chasten Judah by allowing the Chaldeans to invade the land and take them into exile. What he was really hoping for. No, this, however, wasn't the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. What he was really hoping for was that God would send a revival to his people, judge the evil leaders, and establish righteousness in the land. Perhaps he thought that if this happened, if it happened this way, then the nation would escape punishment and the people and cities would be spared. But oftentimes, what good people hope and want isn't always what God has in mind. You see, God, you see, time and time again, God had warned his people, but they wouldn't listen. Prophet after prophet had declared the word only to be rejected. He even sent natural calamities like droughts and plagues and various military defeats, but still the people would not listen. Instead of repenting, the people hardened their hearts even more and churned for help to the gods of the nations around them. They had tried God's long-suffering and patience long enough. And God was telling Habakkuk that it was now time for him to act. If you're like me, and have been praying that God would send a revival to our country, then this is something that we need to keep in mind. Yes, absolutely. This nation, our country, needs a needs a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit, especially as the time draws near for the rapture of the church. But we shouldn't just be stuck on that. And we must consider the possibility that God may have other plans to get us back on our knees. Would you be willing to accept what Habakkuk had a hard time accepting? Try this. In your mind, replace the word Chaldean with a hostile nation of your choosing that wants to seize our lands and wants to take our resources. Now, what if that was God's plan? Would you accept it and remain faithful? Or would you just throw your hands up in the air and give up? I can probably give you more examples. But the point is that regardless of what God does, 
to show us, uh, no matter what God does to show us His glory, we must never forget that He knows exactly what He's doing and why He's doing it and that He's always in control. As Christians, our role, as long as He has us here on this earth, is to continue to remain faithful, be obedient, and to make disciples by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I do hope and pray that this doesn't happen. I do hope and pray for revival. I do hope and pray that this nation will once again experience the Holy Spirit and that more people will come to salvation and, and put their trust in Jesus Christ and be born again. God wants nothing more than to fill his kingdom. So, again, let me just reiterate here what I'm saying is that sometimes what, we pray, what we're praying for and what God is going to do may not always match. But we must always remember that He is, whatever decision, whatever He does, it's always for our own good. It's always for the best. And there's always a reason and purpose behind it. And whether that's that looks like a foreign nation invading or in our own personal lives, Never forget, always remember that God knows. He understands you. He has a plan and purpose. Yes, we'll be sad and hurt. And we're going to be sad and hurt because injustice will continue as long as man is here, as long as sin dwells in the hearts of men. There will always be injustice. It will never go away. People have this idea of a utopian society where everyone's getting along if we just get rid of racism and and all kinds of, you know, I forget if everyone just accepts you know, all these other issues, you know, but sin will always be in the hearts of men. And as long as that exists, there was always, there's always going to be strife, there's always going to be hatred, there's always going to be problems, there's always going to be wars. You don't have to be anxious of what's going to happen. You don't have to be anxious and worried about whether President Trump or President Biden is going to make things worse. Even if they do, when you're in God's hands, when you're in his bosom, when you're in the shadow of his wings, you will always be safe and secure. And if you need that peace, if you want that peace, that goes beyond all understanding, then come to Him. Come to the cross and give your life to Him. Surrender your life. Open the door to your heart. Open the door to your heart to Jesus Christ and allow Him to come in and dwell there. And he will give you the peace that you've been looking for. So if that's what you'd like to do this morning, if 
you ready to do that. I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. So wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And pray this with all your heart and with all sincerity. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I now ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died and you died for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. So now, today, as of this moment, I turn from my sins. I repent and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And I'll ask you that you fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you prayed that, get a hold of us. You want to want to talk to you, want to help you in your next steps of your Christian faith. Um, if you're in the area, we want to invite you to visit us here at Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. the corner of Hondo Pass and Gateway South. Again, you're in the area, come by and check us out. If you're not, if you're somewhere far away in another state, in another country, reach out to us and we'll lead you into, well, maybe we'll help you find a church. If you need a Bible, we'll send one out to you. Um, but yeah, we'd like to talk to you and get to know you a little bit more. Thank you for checking this video out, for spending time with us. I want to encourage you to share and like these videos or this video on your own platforms so that the message goes out there. Again, God wants his kingdom to grow, and this is one way that happens. I look forward to seeing you all next week as we continue on with chapter one, as we get into the next set of uh, the next set of uh, dialogue between God and Habakkuk, and it's going to be wonderful there too. So, thank you again, and be blessed this week, um, wherever you may be. Farewell. Right,